0: Yeah, episode 40, race-based outcomes when we talk in COVID-19 with the one and only Dr. Kate Mulligan. Let's do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, Patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, Crew Quadcast Nation. This is our first episode after the mega episode. And uh, I still can't believe we made that happen, but thanks, everybody, for tuning in. this one's going to be a doozy too. We got Kate Mulligan back talking about race-based outcomes in regards to COVID-19. This is an interview we did back in April 22nd, I believe. And um, obviously, uh, it's quite timely. Um, you know, we are obviously dealing with the George Floyd demonstrations throughout North America. And I, I honestly, I, I think I'll talk maybe deeper about some of the my thoughts on what's going on throughout the country and so on, but I'll just say this. Just remember as Canadians, we're not innocent to this, the way we treat our indigenous population. And I mean, honestly, the, w- the way we treat anyone that's marginalized is, has been atrocious. I mean, all this to say is that it's important to acknowledge it. It's important to deal with it in this is part of the discussion that we had with Kate was, you know, we see that people of color, LGBTQ patients do worse in the context of COVID. Why is that? Why aren't we measuring that? These, uh, this data, even in Canada to get race-based data. We're not doing this. And um all this to say that we could do, we could do better. And people of color or people that are, R- racialized, they need to be at the at the table to be able to really have that voice and say what are the needs, what are the care needs among among us. And so, this was the important part of having this conversation with Kate, and I I really appreciate her efforts to illustrate where our problems are. And she's doing her part. And to me, she's a, she's a hero. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I'll tell you a little bit about our sponsor, the better together project spearhead, spearheaded by Haley Harlock. This is a, an event that's happening July 9th and it's all about supporting the community of, phys, of physician families. You know, it's, uh, it was a tough time going through COVID. It's a tough time throughout medical training and she's really been. A leader in terms of trying to support spouses of physician families. And, and I think this is a real special event, and the camaraderie she's established is tremendous. So the event is July 9th. The promo code is Solving Healthcare. You'll get $10 off sign up fees, and Kathy's going to be there. I'm going to try and be there too, yo. It's going to be special. Anyways, back to the episode. We got Dr. Kate Mulligan on again. She is. Tremendous! she We had a previous episodes about social prescribing, episode seventeen. But honestly, she's a warrior. What she's hustling towards, what she's striving for, is so commendable. So, without further ado, Dr. Kate Mulligan, welcome back, Kate Mulligan. You're back in the mix. How you doing?
1: I'm doing okay, thank you. How are you?
0: Good, good, good. good. You know, I I always giggle because your your intro was the one where we were talking about how doves cry. And at the end of this, I think doves will cry. Actually, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea, but welcome back. You and I connected again, because we're talking about some of the disparities we see in COVID outcomes, like based on race, for example. Yeah. Honestly, Kate, I don't even know where to begin. What are your thoughts in terms of these inequities and discrepancies? Yeah.
1: Well, COVID-19 has really laid some of this stuff bare, stuff that many people in community health centers and other organizations have been really working on and sounding the alarm on and proposing solutions on for a really long time. And it's becoming more evident in Canada and around the world that not everyone is experiencing this pandemic in the same way. So the expression is that we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boats. And so may, while the virus itself may not discriminate the social and political systems that it enters, they do. And we're seeing different levels of exposure to the virus, different levels of risk, different levels of ability to cope with or adhere to physical distancing orders. All that kind of stuff is uh, filtered through our lived experiences and like written on our bodies.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe Kate, it would be easier if you could give us some examples in terms of uh, what what we're seeing.
1: Yeah, so here's an example. As of today there have been three healthcare workers in Ontario who have died from COVID-19. All three are black or racialized people. Hmm. Um and this uh, you know we argue is not a coincidence that you know there are certain people who are at higher risk, uh maybe they're working as personal support workers, um or others who are exposed more to this. And lots of people who are in the essential worker category also find themselves to be at living in low incomes and otherwise marginalized in our society. So maybe on the basis of race, maybe on the basis of being LGBTQ, all those kinds of differences, they matter in a time like this and our ability to, to cope and what we're being asked to do. Are we being asked to shelter at home in a, in a, in a fairly safe environment? Or do we not have a home and not, are not able to to shelter in place? Or are we being asked to do hand washing, but we, we don't have access to safe and clean water, if we're living in remote northern communities, for example. So these are some of the things that filter through and make our experiences of the pandemic really different.
0: Wow. And you brought up a good point when we we're talking offline, like a lot of these policies and approaches are, are for everyone. It's not really... Tailored necessarily to, you know, a community that does not have uh, clean water, a community that has more people maybe working as frontline staff or personal uh, support workers. I guess a really, really good point. And, you know, I'm just, you know, just thinking out loud here like, you know, is this a feasible ask? Are we able to tailor needs? In our current climate,
1: so we are, we are able to do this, and other jurisdictions are doing this in some ways better than we are or differently from the way we are. So what we're learning is that really one size fits all has been the approach taken to date, and it, it, it one size doesn't fit all in this case. So one example is that in the United States, um, which has not had a, a good pandemic response. But one thing that they do is they collect socio-demographic and race-based data. So they can, they can get a sense of how the pandemic is affecting different populations right. differently. And that's why we're seeing lots of headlines out of the United States showing that you know, Latino populations, Black populations, Indigenous, Native American populations um, are having really extreme examples of outbreak. And we can't say the same here because we don't collect those data.
0: That's, crazy.
1: So that's Yeah, it's a, those are some pretty simple epidemiological questions, right? So we can get a sense of how this is playing out and for whom and in what different ways. So one thing that we're working really hard on is trying to make sure that we do collect those data at the provincial level, at the national level and in local public health units. So Manitoba just announced that they are going to start doing that, at least for race based data. And um, several local public health units across Ontario have also announced that they're going to do it. And so we need to be asking lots of different kinds of questions. And there are different ways to do it. But it's an important first step that we're recognizing that that one size doesn't fit all and that we've been avoiding this question in Canada for a long time about how things affect us differently.
0: That's unbelievable because, you know, the more you, almost like the more data points you have, the more information you have, the more informed your decisions could be like, I'll, I'll give yeah. a, this might seem like a random example, but you know, there's certain blood pressure medications that don't work well for the black community. And so, you know, that has been studied. So, you know, someone like myself, if I were hypertensive, I wouldn't be prescribed an ACE inhibitor or a specific type. And so like you would think even as uh, from uh, all levels of science, This would be such a valuable piece of the puzzle for all of this. Yeah, it's
1: it's really, so this is laying bare that for a long time, this has been important. We've been advocating for the collection of these data for years. And certainly Black communities and Indigenous communities have been advocating Indigenous communities wanting to have control over these data for themselves because they have a history of seeing these data misused. So that's a whole, uh, another approach, another layer to the approach here in Canada that's really important, that Indigenous people need to um, have the, have they do have the right, and they need to be able to exercise the right to control these data. But it still means they need the data. Like, the data is still really important for help us to help target interventions. And community health centers have been collecting these for many years. So there is no barrier to doing this, no legal barrier. And we've shown through our research that, you know, we can, we're better able to do, to target interventions so cervical cancer screening rates amongst racialized people are way higher in community health centers than across the than the than average uh, because we have the data and we can act on it so that's but, one example of the kind of thing that we need to know about that we kind of have a hunch is probably happening with covid but we don't know for sure because we're not asking the right questions
0: but i mean that cervical cancer screening that's a great example of like you know especially like what in that example or something that's really treatable especially if you catch yeah. early and to be able to offer that in a, in a more tailored way for a marginalized community that yeah. is unbelievable and i just because i just think about all that can go wrong like the thing that you learn about a pandemic is that it all it all affects us i mean even before a pandemic it all affects us but like if you got a group you know that is, has impaired ability to social distance. That just means there's more virus out there for, to be spread. You know what I mean? Like, so it's really, is paramount to be having these discussions.
1: I think it is really important. And this has illustrated for sort of the mainstream population, how important that is. One, that you might be experiencing social isolation or impact on the social determinants of your health that you never experienced before. Um, so suddenly you recognize that you know, being connected to your community is actually really important to your health. Being able to exercise and get outside and all those things, um, those are really important to your health. But also, you know, many people in the, in the general population have lost their jobs or are facing other economic hardships, or maybe can't see uh, their families for whom they are caregivers, all those different things. They're really important, and people are starting to experience that and recognize, like, it's very difficult to live on $2,000 a month from the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. But people living on on, uh, Ontario Works or Ontario Disability Support Program get less than that. Mm -hmm. on a regular month all the time and so we're all starting to kind of see how important it is and then the other part like you said is that in a pandemic we realize that care for the most marginalized person is care for all of us because if we don't care for people in all settings then the virus just won't go away so right now we're focused on this promised vulnerable people action plan that hasn't been materialized yet that's supposed to help us focus on areas that we are operating in the dark on right now. We have no idea what's happening. There's no transparency in reporting, no prioritization for places like jails, group homes, migrant agricultural workers living in dormitories, any place where people are living in close quarters, just like long-term care. But we don't have the data, so we don't know what's going on. And we need to know. We need to know so that we can prioritize these populations and provide them with the supports and services and healthcare that they need.
0: Yeah. And I might be talking out of my behind here, but I think there's a lot of assumptions that are being made that I I don't know are are wise. Like I had a um, friend mentioned in terms of the judicial system, like the jails, like if someone's got a a reason to get out of jail, basically, uh, because we want to make sure COVID doesn't spread within the jail, they are getting some freedom. You know, and what is, like, one, you don't even know if it's spreading in the jail. Two, even if they get it, we don't know what the impact will be. But my, I guess the point of what I'm trying to say is that without studying it or looking at it and testing and really putting some evaluation in there, yeah. we're, we're going blind, you know? Yeah.
1: And so what we're hearing, we are hearing that there are, you know, we know that there are outbreaks in jails already. Okay. Um we support releasing people from those outbreak conditions where, where it's possible and where it's safe for everyone. Mm-hmm. And th- one of the challenges is that many of the people who are being released now are on what's called remand. So they haven't been sentenced. And those, and it, p- under the policy, the way the policy world works, those people have no plans for their health or social care. So they're just released with maybe a mask and 10 bucks in their pocket or something. So community health centers um, need to be in there providing and supporting these people. So there's, you know, people are often, often released without enough of a plan and without enough supports. And that, that doesn't bode well for containing the virus. I mean, it doesn't bode well for the the lives of people. We see people, you know, immediately within a day or two overdosing, that kind of thing. Um, There's so much support and, and, and belonging that's needed to wrap around people to keep them safe and to keep everybody safe. So that's just one of the examples.
0: No, exactly. And in that example too, is... Like, you're not really given former prisoner, like, an ability to succeed. You know what I mean? No. Like, uh, yeah. like uh, that's what I mean about really having to think through a lot of these, yeah. these uh, principles. And but the, the other good thing-, thing
1: is, the expertise is there. Like community health organizations, social service organizations, and others, they have this knowledge and expertise. They just have been put on the margins. They aren't part of this one-size-fits-all response. So um, it's not too hard to bring them into the conversation and to help make sure that the supports are there.
0: Amen. Amen. And the other thing too that, you know, that I, I feel like is a realization is I was telling you before, where we interviewed Mark Tyndale and he was talking about how in, in Vancouver, you know, once the public or, the, you know, the government realized this should be a priority for a marginalized uh, population, like housing got created, like like th- things that they've been asking for for years, all of a sudden got prioritized. Mm -hmm. And so we know this is feasible. This is, I guess that's the moral of what I'm trying to say is like, we know we can, we can make this happen. You know. It's totally
1: a question of political will and collective will. And we've had real success uh, with mobilizing everyday people. So we've made a few open letters, for example, and they've just got thousands of signatures. One of them was about race-based data. And it mm-hmm. made a difference. Like it really landed in a way that started, we started to see change at the local level and across some other provinces. So it, make, it does make a difference. We need to demonstrate that there is demand for some of this stuff that we know has been important, but wasn't part of the, the, the main way of thinking before
0: COVID. Wow. Wow. And I mean, you, a lot of the listeners, I think we talk about a lot, a lot, like what can we learn from COVID? What can we use yeah. to move forward? Even when COVID is gone. And I hoped that this is one of them, like just adding that piece to the puzzle and really thinking about tailored care. So, you know, we talk about having a more tailored approach, but are there like maybe higher level concepts or, or, or mm-hmm. ideas in terms of how we overcome this that we haven't mentioned already?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are, I mean, there are many, I think, you know, so centering the idea of health equity is really important, important. So in our work, that's what we do. We constantly ask in a practice-informed way, like, is this advancing health equity? Is this making the lives of everyone healthier and reducing the gaps in health outcomes and access for people? And when we ask that question every time, we're able to kind of keep centering it. So that's what's missing right now in policy responses is that, you know, it may come up, but not until after a brand new health data collection system has been pioneered that doesn't include any of this stuff. And then you have to go back and retrofit it. And that's a a waste of everybody's time and energy. It should be there right at the beginning. So another example is the Ontario bioethics table. Which is supposed to inform important clinical decisions, like triage decision making in hospitals about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. And the first go at this, because of the rapid rush, was really just acute care-based, hospital-based clinical bioethicists, who were almost uniformly white and coming from a you know a certain worldview. And so it was important that they got that going quickly. But then we needed to again retrofit that to make sure that black health leaders were included, indigenous health leaders were included, community health leaders were included, such that we can reflect the expertise and the data that shows not everyone's going to be experiencing this in the same way, not everyone, if you're Black or Indigenous and you, ha- and you have a reason not to trust the healthcare system, you may not go to the emergency department until you're much further along in your disease process. And that's going to affect where you land on the triage protocol. And if no one is cognizant of those social factors that put you in that place in the triage protocol to begin with, or other biases that might go into your care, that's a problem and we, so we need to not just use the words health equity or vulnerability in our plans but we need some very some specificity in that so that we're looking for the right kinds of um gaps and making sure that we're able to fill them so that's another example of where we need to have equity not retrofitted but right in there from the beginning
0: wow is it is uh that's so well put like to think there's some okay i got a few comments i guess but one you know, it, it seems intuitive that if you're going to have some fairly large policies that you'd want people, a fairly diverse collection of, of, of staff or people at the table. And, you know, we both know this is not always true uh, at all levels. And then just that example you, you brought up about how some marginalized people will... Will be fearful that are fearful of the system, like when we had uh, Jeff Turnbull on talking about how, you know, people that are in the city would be reluctant to be coming into to hospital in general, and then add COVID into this. How does that affect our policy? How does that affect triage? How can we better address this or or communicate some of our concerns to? Uh, this, uh, our patient, different patient populations. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so true. Like, I mean, it. I think the problem honestly is it because we all are looking for cook, too many cookie cutter, one, <laughs> one slice fits all. Is that an expression? You know, when it comes to yeah. too many things in life. And if I'm, if I've seen a, enough, even within medicine is like, you gotta like rarely people fit into a box nicely, you know? And so, yeah, but it's, it's so important like that, that would be a key solution in my, in our mind anyway, to have an appropriate representation at, at the table before, not, not afterwards, but, you know before decisions are made.
1: Yeah, and again, the expertise exists. There are, there are you know people with lots of expertise, lots of training, lots of lived expertise as well, who can come and be part of that conversation. And we totally see that in the conversation with people who use drugs, who are yeah. uh, more than capable of advocating for themselves and their peers about what's needed. And that's another area where we had to do some retrofitting and it was a, it was a while before personal protective equipment was prioritized for consumption and treatment services, for example. Yeah. It was, it, you know, even though again, this is a group where physical distancing is really hard. Being being willing to come into a healthcare setting during COVID might not be all that appealing. But we need to keep people alive, so it's like a double crisis facing that group. And again, it took you know it took a whole bunch of advocacy just to get personal protective equipment into these settings. And there were a few overdose prevention services that had to close temporarily because they just had too many staff uh, who had been potentially exposed, exposed and, and yeah. work. And Man. so that puts people at risk, right? So again, an afterthought, and we did see um, an important big delivery of PPE just last week to many of the consumption and treatment services. But last week, right? Like that's a long time from the beginning of the pandemic.
0: This is, a, this is May fourth. May the 4th. I can't say that. Sorry, I was going to say May the fourth. <laughs> yeah, that's like the antithesis of my being. But but I just want to take a second, Kate Mulligan, to to really express the great work that you and your, your group like are doing, like to advocate for such, for people that need it. And, and it's, and it not only are you advocating, but you're making a difference. Again, PPE, personal protective equipment to people that needed that are front front lines as well. And that might be under-recognized, but that could that, that step could be the, what prevented an outbreak that could be yep. this thing that that literally could be uh, affecting lives. So it's, yep. I mean, not only for at that level, but just the fact that you're advocating for people that need help, I, I got to say is so commendable and I don't know what... Yeah,
1: thank you. So we don't just do it for people, but we do it with people and by people. And it mm-hmm. wouldn't work if it wasn't like practice-informed and community-informed. So there's community leaders, community-governed organizations, peer workers out there all across uh, Canada who inform what we ask for and what we do at the policy level. And we're really just sort of like icebreakers. We try to make connections and broker relationships that help communities do the advocacy work that they already know, they know what to do. And so I think that's really important to like honor and recognize that we're in the business of kind of doing this practice informed policy work and we have the privilege of being at the table or shouldering our way onto tables. And then it's our responsibility to make sure that the, the right people eventually end up at those tables.
0: Man, well, I'm gonna uh, keep busting through those tables, man. Drop kick in, through karate chop in, whatever kind of means that you need to get through because it's making a difference, Thank Kate you. Mulligan, and it's, it's commendable. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Any last thoughts or any last messages you wanna bust out to Quadcast listeners? I
1: do. I want to thank everybody who's been doing that informal caregiving. Like all those of you who have stepped up in your communities to just care for your neighbor, reach out Mm. and check on somebody, all that informal stuff. That is what makes community work. And that is how we're going to get through this. So we are hoping that we can, you know, shift some of that into more of a community response Now that we see that the acute care response isn't as needed as we may have thought, or maybe we prevented it from being needed in a good way by showing solidarity and and working together. But now what we really need is to invest in community and to get these local approaches and grassroots approaches going even more and with kind of extra funding and support where you need it. So thank you for that. That really gives me hope.
0: Oh man. Well put Dr. Kate Mulligan. It's always a pleasure to see you and, uh, and uh, and stay sane. And I got
1: you. I got <laughs> you. One one tidbit just for you. Yeah. Angus Reid poll just shows showed that pa- parents with ch- young children working at home are fifty percent more stressed than everybody else right now.
0: <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. When I'm offline, i can gonna tell you about uh, our anniversary that we just had the other day. It was. Whatever the opposite of an anniversary is, is what the, <laughs> what that was. Oh no! <laughs> but we're we're still together. We're Wedding ring still there. Um, but <laughs> thank you very much for acknowledging uh, that. Uh, take care, Kate. Yes.
1: Okay. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you, everybody, for for tuning in. That was a great episode with Dr. Kate Mulligan. Please leave comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at quadcast. Sign up for our newsletter. are attached to the show notes. And guys, be good, be safe, and we'll connect real soon. Thanks so much.